It is May the 1st, 2021, and you're watching The Future of Photography. The Future of Photography. Yeah, you're watching and you're listening to, I guess. I don't really know what the... I think more people are listening, I would think. Uh, I'm Chris, there's Imar, there's Adrian, there's Jeremiah. Good... Uh, Whatever part of the day. <laughs> Ciao, bella. <laughs> Ciao, Morning. bella. Yeah. But you have to do it with the fingers like this. <laughs> there are a lot of finger gestures in this country that are too rude for that. <laughs> I might get it wrong. You've got to use the right one. Ah, here we go again with another episode about, well, the future of photography. It's a big. I guess it has a part of a history lesson in it, but of course, there are implications. We're talking about light today. And uh, Adrian, you have brought us a, a few morsels of history into our into our pad that we're working off. So uh, yeah, why, do, why don't you kick this off? Well, thank you indeed. Uh, it's I like to think this is applied history, right? So this is there's, there's something for us all to learn. I've got a little story to tell. Uh, there's something for for us all to learn, and hopefully that can then be applied to uh, our photography. I think that's that's where we're going here today. So um, first first of all, it is a story about some famous people, um, and you know they're famous for things not necessarily to do with photography so mm. um uh, although the first name probably not so many will intuitively jump to uh so first off has anybody heard of william thompson nope mm, in the context Glass of photography region. not really okay all right well here we go so so uh william thompson was born in belfast in 1824 so what's that nearly 200 years ago at this point mm. Um, having having been born in Belfast, though he lived most of his life in Glasgow, and he had a, a, a really very successful scientific academic career um and uh, he also was a, a reasonably successful businessman and made plenty of money on the side and lived in a nice house and what have you if you go to glasgow today there's a certain area in glasgow and i can't remember what it's called but i was, I was grove i was could no. be could be there's a park named after him and, and yeah, stuff like that and you you've just jumped ahead there Ema, because you've used the name right <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 deal with that right so so people might know him um actually more more by his uh, official title uh he was the first baron kelvin um uh, otherwise known as lord kelvin oh. and he is the person who the temperature scale is named after so he didn't invent it but he did a chunk of work around it um and uh it was named after him at the, the wikipedia uh, calls him the right honorable the lord kelvin Yes. Well, uh, as is as is the case um, in, in this country, even today, uh, people can carry many titles. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's a, you, you can you can collect them as you go. It's kind of like, I don't know, Pokemon or something. <laughs> collect them all. And sometimes those titles are not as polite as the right. Well, in, indeed, indeed, indeed. OK, so um, 
you know, um, William Thompson, uh, the first Baron Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, he had a fantastically um, uh, successful career. He ended up his career, uh, you know, um, I mean, he worked for, you know, till he was at least 75 or something like that. And he ended up as a chancellor or chairman or something of the the, the leader, the, the boss of the University of Glasgow, amongst other things. Um, the first f- photographic name that, that comes into this story, um, I'm hoping everybody will know, um, in about 1899, uh, a, a chap by the name of George Eastman uh, recruited William Thompson. So hopefully everybody's heard of George Eastman. If not, Chris has got some videos of his house you can watch on YouTube. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, so uh, George Eastman actually recruited uh, Kelvin to serve uh, as vice chairman of the board, I think, uh, of the British arm of Kodak, Kodak Limited, um, which, of course, is heavily uh, connected with Eastman Kodak in the United States. It, it, this bit got me wondering. This It was going to be a bit of a rabbit hole, so I haven't done all the research. This bit made me uh, got me wondering about whether Kodak Limited, uh, perhaps better known now as Alaris, um, was, was the start of the, the company that, that now actually, um, own, owns all of the uh, the Kodak manufacturing of film, um, but uh, not entirely sure about that. But there's definitely something for listeners who like to get down to the bottom of the rabbit holes to go into there. Okay, so um, the the name Kelvin, by the way, it's got nothing to do with temperature. Um, William Thompson had a laboratory at the university, and a river ran past it, and it was called the River Kelvin. And so when he received his honorary peerage, um, he was named Lord Kelvin. So actually, the Kelvin scale is about water. It's got nothing to do with temperature at all. <laughs> <laughs> at least it wasn't his pet rabbit. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. OK, moving on. And a story. Next chapter in our story. Now we start to involve uh, another uh, another famous scientist, uh, this time, hopefully, uh, a household name uh, and uh chris one of your compatriots a chap by the name of max planck yep yeah um i i, I don't know uh do um do do they in german schools teach much uh, about max planck and, and scientists i know sometimes in in british schools we we, we learn about the the successes of british <coughs> scientists but I guess uh, sometimes we're, no, we're in, a little bit uh, colloquial here. He he, com- he comes up in context when 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 like quantum theory and these kind of things are mentioned. Um, and of course, there's the Max Planck Society with uh, different locations spread all over Germany. And uh, one uh, one was in the uh, was in Tübingen where I used to live. So um, oh, I, was, right. I was there was always you always kind of knew someone who worked there. But yeah. That's that's kind of my involvement with Max Planck. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, um, did you all know that in the early 1890s, uh, Max Planck was asked to figure out the optimal temperature of a light bulb, <laughs> such that <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> it would it would be the most efficient. Where efficient in this case means the maximum amount of light output for an input of electrical power. Ah. That's cool. <laughs> Everybody's now looking at me going, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. That should be easy to figure out. Uh, well, <laughs> apparently not. Apparently not, um, which is why there's a video on this in the show notes, because apparently in order to figure out the answer to this relatively straightforward question, uh, Max Planck had to invent quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm exaggerating a little bit there for the storytelling effect. Um, he, he may not quite inv- have invented uh, quantum mechanics, but he certainly did some very important groundwork uh, that was then built upon by others. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's the old story, isn't it, in the world of science? You know, if I've seen further than others, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So um, certainly uh, Max Planck uh, had a, a big role to play here. Um, so... Um, they, they, it turns out that the answer to that question about the temperature of a light bulb uh, was really, really difficult to answer because, uh, well, it's it's a, a lot of a lot of us would understand quite intuitively, I think, that the more energy you put into something, the hotter it gets. Mm. Uh, but of course, it gives uh, you know, mo- most things give off heat and then electromagnetic radiation uh, in in a vast spectrum rather than a single point. So it became a very difficult thing to answer. Uh, and what Planck discovered in his research was that actually, um, uh, you know, light travels in packets um, called quanta. And this was, you know, brand, brand new science, right? Brand, absolutely brand new science. The practical implications of it for us as photographers and filmmakers, you know, the hotter a body is, uh, the higher the frequency of the light given off. Um, and high frequency uh, invisible light tends towards the blue end of the spectrum, the, the ultraviolet, whereas lower frequencies tend towards the infrared end of the visible light spectrum. Okay, so in other words, you know, the hotter something is, the more blue it gets. Now, that's incredibly counterintuitive to me because, you know, ice is cold, right? Ice is cold, right? And it's blue and fire is hot and it's red, right? So surely, surely hotter things are redder, not bluer, which is why I always turn the white balance dial the wrong way on my camera. Yeah. but it turns out that the science behind it is that there's a whole bunch of stuff beyond fire that is really hot, like the sun and stuff like that. Um, you know, which then, uh, which actually do burn bluer, and, and you know, and so actually, the hotter you go, the the bluer the light given off by a body. Um, it doesn't have to be on fire, by the way. It can just be the heat inside a body uh, of matter, um, and and it will it will get hot enough. When it gets hot enough, it'll it'll glow. You know, we talk about things being red hot or white hot. But Beyond that, you get to blue hot. Anyway, that's what confused. And how, how does that uh, work in black holes, where light can <laughs> this is not escape? I You're I think, asking so the right questions. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Triggered I, that. I'm going to give you the photographer's answer. There's a clue in the name. <laughs> they don't call them black holes for nothing. <laughs> uh, beyond that, I have absolutely no idea what the answer to your question is. I'm afraid. <clears throat> uh, okay, so so let's have a little break, right? Is everybody following the story so far? Right, hotter yeah. things are blue, colder things mm-hmm. are red. Yes, yeah. take your word for it. Yeah, <laughs> don't take my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> colder hot theory. things. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can, you can, you can. Colder cold things are blue. Colder hot things are red. Well, really hot things. Blue. How does that relate to LEDs? Oh well, we'll come on to uh, that in a minute. Actually, that's a very, no, very. I, good I think question. I think it's fairly logical. If you if you uh, make a piece of steel glow and you make it glow much much hotter, it gets white. It turns white. Mm. Yeah. Right. So it's white hot. Yeah. And um, that gets towards the blue side of the spectrum, while it mm. uh, it being colder in relation to that white heart it gets redder so 
it kind of makes sense. If you look at a candle flame, you can see all that, can't you? It has the hotter That's parts and the colder parts, yes. Yeah, because you get the And as you get closer right to the, the sun, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what happens then? Your wings okay, are um, getting hotter. So, can, so can, can anybody that hasn't redder. read the show notes further down um, have a guess uh, about what the answer to the question is? Remember, Max Planck was asked a question, what is the optimal temperature for a light bulb? Anybody? 3,200. Was that a guess or did you read the show notes? <laughs> no, I did not read the show notes. It's <laughs> a good guess. It's a guess. If it's a guess, genuinely a really, really good guess because it's absolutely spot on. <laughs> and so what we now think of in terms of tungsten white balance or, or, or a 3200 Kelvin, that all comes about because in the early days of electric lighting, uh, it was calculated that that was the most efficient temperature to give off the most light for a given input of electrical power. Mm-hmm. There we go. What a great story, eh? Well, check, please. <laughs> Those guys were just amazing, weren't they? I mean, crazy in amazing and crazy way, in the best kind of crazy, like um, Max Planck and um, um, yeah. all yeah. those guys. That, uh, like s- Tesla and just mad. S- sidebar question. Mm. Why are were the Scots so great at these kinds of engineering in their culture? Have you been to Scotland? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of environmental things to battle in Scotland. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I it's a really good question. I, I don't know. It's and just I, a to really be honest, big. Um, so they were, it was very important in science in general. I think it was that kind of University of Edinburgh and mm. all like the medical school there and like all the experimentation they were doing with bodies and it, you know it it just seemed to be like a hub for I guess. All yep. those people were attracted like moths to a flame. And I think it's a, a lot of it is to do with money as well. So you have to remember uh, at this point in in time, Glasgow was you know, a, an incredibly important trading city and money flocked to it. So it was a centre for engineering and it was a centre for business and it was a centre mm-hmm. for learning and, 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 and science and experimentation. Um, you know, it's it, that that is, I think, part of... You, you, we have several cities like that in, in the UK, um, actually more than several, uh, where where they had at, the, at various different times in the last three, four, five hundred years, they've been the centre for for something new, and and it has attracted brain power and economic power and things like that. I mean, I, I guess. I, mean, I guess there may well be equivalents in Ireland and in Germany. And, you know, I think cause a, a lot of this happened before the, the mass population of the United States. But I think you still see it in the east coast of the United States as well very much, don't you? Well, uh, yeah, I think more more in the west coast hubs of Stanford, Silicon Valley, uh, you, you have a tremendous amount of uh, attraction of money, science, education, all kind of roiling around that created the Googles and Apples, mm. et cetera, et cetera, that have kind of spread across the across the world. I think we're going to see that in China soon and uh, artistically in Mexico City or Paris. There was that for different reasons. Yeah. I can't remember um, where Stanford was from, but I know the Berkeley family uh, of the famous Berkeley all, University. They're, they're sure. English. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I'd never know. So, so there, there is a there is a, 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 a well, I think not very famous, but an old an old British family called called the Barclay family. Uh, they they have a castle called Barclay Castle in the West Country, uh, and uh, uh, they are the family behind Barclay Square, as in uh, a nightingale sang in Barclay Square, the very famous, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very um nice nice place to be in london there's actually a barclay square in bristol as well which is closer to their family home it's not quite as grand as the one in london uh but again all of this comes yeah yeah and and one of them i i understand was one of the founders of berkeley university i think <laughs> but there you go i mean that might be one entirely an urban myth but there you go <laughs> Okay, right, on with the story then. Well, actually, the, probably the story bit is over because, of course, the question to ask now is, you know, what does all of this mean? Why are we telling this story today? What does all of this mean for us as photographers and filmmakers? And there's another link in the show notes um, to uh, another short video, uh, this time from on a YouTube channel called Filmmaker IQ, um, which is a fantastic channel. If anybody doesn't know of it, please do go watch it. Um, Absolute recommendation. On that yeah, oh yeah. yeah he's really good yeah he, yeah. he is very good he's, he's very yeah. good um this particular video is about seven or eight years old as we record this so some of the technology he mentions especially around led light um mm. the technology has moved on you know a, a chunk um it's not far off because he's talking in terms of theory and challenges and things like that but um it, it is uh, there is some technological maturity that that wasn't there when when this was when this was last made or this video sorry was made um but you know it's uh, the the video talks about a little bit about the history stuff uh, but it talks about what this means in practical terms for us um it talks about what it means in artistic terms for us as well and uh, you know as, as uh, i mean it's a, it's a channel that focuses on filmmaking rather, rather than photography so so the people he quotes are people like you know, famous cinematographer Roger Deakins for example and and uh, the, the example there was the the cool color temperatures that Deakins used in the film Fargo, the the Coen Brothers uh, movie Fargo. Uh, sure. Uh, 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 just just one example f- from that. Well, you know, uh, Christopher Doyle uh, in the Mood for Love, you know, is a a great example of of the use of color and blending colors to evoke mode. You know, um, Hurt you know, Locker the, was the a crea- good one as well for that. Very much the the, the Hurt Locker was great for color. Yeah. Um. um uh, you know, Storaro. Um, who I, you know, I, I've had the pleasure of knowing, uh, could spend hours and hours and hours discussing the quality of light and color and how it evokes emotional responses on every level. Um, it's probably the subject to for another show, which is color in photography and how our controls of color can be, uh, as we move forward in technology, how we have more control over mixing and matching colors on a very specific uh, scale because we can tune our lights to Kelvin that is very specific and we can blend them and we can adjust them and contrast them. And so it becomes a very interesting subject spoken by the man who generally works in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> Which is That's the okay. easy way out when it comes to colors, right? It's a podcast. Yeah. We're all winging it, Jeremiah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so the future, of course, I mean, it's the past, but it's also the future because light temperature, color temperature is is crucial 
to anything that sure. we do in our color work. It is there. It, it, we have to take it into That's account. True. And it doesn't matter if we, if we artificially create the light or if we, uh, we shoot, shoot during daylight um, because even the daylight changes over the entire day. It's always different. And by the way, I'm only being facetious about black and white because black and white's uh, rendition, ref reflection, and interpretation of, of color is absolutely fundamental in mm. understanding how to get the best black and white. And every black uh, and white film has a different way of dealing with the different parts of the spectrum. So, yeah. Certainly does. And, and in the early days of, uh, of uh, filmmaking, uh, you know, makeup had to be interpreted in a very, very different way. She, you know, Sue had actresses with effectively almost black lips and I've seen, faces. I've seen and, uh, recreations of old sets where the actors had like green and blue faces because that <laughs> would that would register sure. on the black and white yeah. film as as you would expect red lips to look and a healthy <laughs> color to look. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. And, and let's not forget that uh, while the sun is our kind of great equalizer in terms of uh, Kelvin and, and overall kind of consistent color, that it is getting less bright every day. And in about 10 billion years, it won't be around at all. Shoot fast. Possibly the slightly more noticeable impact on the sun's light is the different times of day. Um, oh, yeah, so, that. Yeah, oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That things, <laughs> things like golden hour, golden for example. Hour. Yeah, yeah. Go, golden hour being a feature of that when the sun is low on the horizon, the sun rays have to come through far more Earth atmosphere uh, to, to get to you. Um, or the gloaming. They're filtered. Anybody familiar with that term, the gloaming? The gloaming. Roman in the gloaming. Roman in the gloaming. Yeah. Just before night falls, like. Ah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, these things are, you know, a little, little bit of history, a little bit of, uh, what, what does it all mean for us? Well, first of all, I, I know we say this every week, but I really would encourage people to follow the links in the show notes <laughs> um, and if you're not so much interested in history please look at the filmmaker iq one because it deals with some really practical stuff uh that you know it, things like um why are fluorescent lights green um what are the difference between some some lights that that, that uh you know re really only emit in part of the visible spectrum uh, for, depending, um, different from those that, that emit light across a broad range of the visible spectrum. Why are why are kino flows so expensive? <laughs> um, and, and, and why don't we really use them so much anymore because of LEDs, right? Yeah, uh, or all all of that. I mean, it's the, the, there's a lot of really good practical stuff in that filmmaker IQ video. Uh, uh, that and it's for me because I'm really interested in this. This is the bit of photography that I, I geek out on most. I think color and light. Um, I'm I'm less. In fact, I, I probably couldn't accurately tell you how many pixels my cameras have. Um, uh, sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which, by the way, slight aside, I believe that's what it says in the Rolls Royce brochure about when it, uh, in the section on engine power. I believe that Shopping it's quite lately. a legendary thing that Rolls Royce. <laughs> they just say our cars have sufficient power. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Do you think that color, uh, and this is for all three of you, in an image is distracting or fundamental in terms of its delivery of uh, subject and emotion? I would say fundamental. Yeah. Because you can change the mood of 
an image dependent on I think it's what way you choose to color it in my own just from my own point of view mm-hmm. dramatically changes like I, th- I think the mood the mood really really is linked to color but not just because mm. um, I know probably know as many photos that I find emotionally touching that are in color as there are in black and white so it's a different it's a different language. Color is a different language than black and white. Uh, contrasts versus colors, even though the black and white part is always present in the color part, while the color part is not present in a black and white photo. So there is, there's a very close link, and I have the feeling that you can tell the same stories in black and white that you can tell with color and vice versa. I think it's just uh, a different yeah, tool, and you need to learn to use the tools. Yeah. So it's the light, really, more than the color, isn't it? Um, uh, I, I would say that, that it, how it all works in, in combination is what really mm. drives it. I mean, I find that if I went on the street randomly in a very busy um, visual environment and took a snap, and then I did the exact same shot in black and white and just compared them, mm. I would be a lot less interested in the color image because it would just be a cacophony uh, and a yeah. blend and, and a, a kind of a, uh, a melange of, of colors that meant nothing. Mm. And yet in black and white, I could reduce it to its abstract uh, contrast, reflectivity mm. and form, which would have more same image, more, more impact. Mm. On the other hand, uh, there was a wonderful movie called Judo, uh, Chinese uh, film maybe in the thinking the late 80s early 90s uh, but the the sense of color it all was set in a um a dye factory or fabric dyeing factory mm. and the color of red and the mm. just the the use of color would not have been the same film in mm. black and white because color was there as a character in the film Again, I referred to In the Mood for Love or many, many of Chris Doyle's film Hero, all of those. Color is a character um, as much as anything else. Um, the same way in in, in Mank, latest film um, of this year, black and white really is a great signifier for the history of film and the form and the, the kind of classic... Um, uh, simplicity of shape and form in storytelling. So I, I think what what we're all saying is learning both is really important and understanding what works best in terms of one's intention mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. is uh, important. C- certainly, that's part of what I was hoping to get out of this conversation, Jeremiah. Because you know, we we hear so much about the decisive moment. Um, and you know, we see so many YouTube videos about street photographer. I'm out on the street shooting this photo and that photo, um, and then, and I, sometimes I think, do you know what? That's that's quite a a, a one dimensional look at it. It's not a bad dimension, but sometimes it can be quite one dimensional. And what happens if you? What happens if you blend that? What happens if you get somewhere closer to the color street work of Saul Leiter, for example? Mm. Or what happens if you go to the far point of uh, uh, of this equation and you end up taking photographs that are just because of the color and, and Eggleston springs to mind at that point? You know, and then you know, the, 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 there are so many different things. And then light. What, what, you know, let's pick one out of the blue. Uh, Fan Ho. 
Fat, yeah. Fan Ho uh, he, he, photos of, of Hong Kong in, is it the 50s, the 1950s mostly, maybe, um, you know, which are which are black and white, but are all mind-blowing, mind-blowing mm, work, yeah. yes. Um, and, and you almost think, you know, it's almost like you've got, you know, um, uh, a, a three-pointed, you know, a, a, let's, let's say it's a, it's a triangle, and one of the points of the triangle is colour, and another point of the triangle is, is light, and another point of the triangle is something to do with composition or something form form yeah. form okay yeah, yeah even better thank you mm-hmm. and you know what you know where do you where do you sit or, or what do you try to achieve are you trying to achieve um you know something around that pushes more into color or is color less important and actually form is more important you know we, we have all of these you know rules that are thrown at us you know like leading lines and the rule of thirds and things like that sometimes it helps just see the the bigger picture and for me this stuff that we've been talking about today about color temperature and and, and color itself um for me it's all part of the big context and you know, as often as not, it's a it's a colour that catches my eye, or it's a combination of colour and light, mm. and, and you think, oh yeah, I wonder if I could capture that in any any way that makes sense as I've seen it in my brain. You know, mm. So. Mm. I th- I think when you lift the camera or or to your eye and look through the viewfinder, or or you know, hold your phone up and and something catches your eye and you're framing it, um, there is an immediate instinct of what drew you to that moment you may have taken a picture quickly but then you may settle down and want to do that extra Mm. shot where maybe you you adjust the horizon line a little more Mm. carefully where Mm. you balance the the compositional load uh a little more carefully but you're i know this is for me i'm always asking myself what draws me to this uh do am i seeing this in black and white or am i seeing this in color Mm. sometimes it's it's given in other words Mm. i'm i'm looking for black and white gray low contrast high contrast busy not busy whatever my intention is but sometimes i'm just walking randomly and i'll go oh look at that i want to take a picture Mm. of it and then i (laughs) i'll snap it and then do another one where my conscious mind is going the color itself is provoking my response, and then I will have a different interpretation. I may adjust it either in post or mm. in my presence as I photograph it. And I think those explorations are always interesting. That second beat of conscious uh, snap as opposed to the instinct snap yeah. and comparing those are often a very interesting way of self-discovery. That's, yeah. um, you know what I often find? The first one is the best. Do you ever <laughs> find often. that? Yes, ah. yes. No. For me, first for me, yes. For me, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, the first one was the best. Why didn't I just 50, stop 50. then? I did this. Yeah. I did this 50, during. I did this during our little exercise for this episode. We uh, set ourselves a little exercise to. Um, not necessarily uh, strictly related to light, even though it's photography. But um, uh, we talked about pinhole photography and. Uh, and uh, gave ourselves a little task to bring home pinhole photos. And I've taken my let's let's just move on move on to that now. Um, I've taken <laughs> my uh, my digital camera and put a pinhole cap on it, pretty much. Um, and I found when coming back home and reviewing the photos that it was most of the time the first one that worked out best. Interestingly enough. 
I often work myself towards a photo, but in this case, it was more more than not the the, the earlier ones in the. Well, I in the I could agree with that because shooting pinhole, it, there's so much up in the air. Yeah, if you're anticipating <laughs> that's what I discovered <clears throat> something, and I think it's the surprise of it mm. and that instinct that mm. is also part of the flow. I but I think that you know under different circumstances, I you know I. When I went and made my first television commercial, this is me as a photographer, was hired to do a TV commercial. And it was the first, literally the first time I was ever on a set, never mind <laughs> film set. And it was my set. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to adjust the light and all the union guys go, no, you don't have to do that. We do that. And I went, oh, I could get used to that. <laughs> Change that light, lower that. <laughs> I just sit in my chair and bark orders. I loved it. But when I was shooting, there was a moment uh, where a woman had to hold a glass up to the, you know, she, she took a drink of wine glass and I wanted to just hit that little bing on the edge of the glass. Mm-hmm. And so I did it and it looked pretty good. And then I did it again and adjusted, you know, 50 takes. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm in the editing room. It was a wonderful editor that I, that I worked with, uh, Ron Vester, who... Um, Really taught me a great deal about about you know working in film. We were cutting it on a flatbed, and we were running the takes. And it was like, okay, there's take one. That's pretty good. Take two. That's pretty good. <laughs> the difference, like between take one and take fifty, was like in the in the context of a cut. It was just like a moment. Yeah. <laughs> and so I learned very quickly that there is a very different preciousness about a still image that is highly controlled by the image maker mm. and a transitional image, which uses uh, more Eisensteinian mm. context to <laughs> affect the yeah. delivery of the intention. So I get, I get that even in my own stuff with the family, even just something really basic, like taking photographs of the family or taking video of the family, you know, it's, it's a very different thing because you, 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 uh-huh. you, you, you want that element of control or you want to capture a decisive moment, dare I say it in, in a photograph, <laughs> but with a video oh, it's like, well, yeah. you get 30 decisive moments a second. So mm. <laughs> Well, often as a joke on set, uh, we, you know, when we have to do a, a lot of, of, of takes for, you know, what could be a mechanical reason or performance issue, whatever, I'll often like go, okay, print one and 80. <laughs> <laughs> Always gets a good response from, huh. <laughs> from the camera department. <laughs> All right. Okay. Do you well, want to look at photos? Go. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to look at pictures? Okay, let me bring up the... I have to confess, though, I didn't do any of the pinhole stuff, I'm afraid. So. That is fine. That is fine. <laughs> so um, I'm bringing up our, our TFOB photo library. You can find those at uh, tfttf.com slash TFOB photos. Uh, that is, of course, also linked in the show notes um, if you're not watching this, but you want to see the photos later. Um, so we start with... Is that... Is that did no, you? That's not that one. That's that's ju- this one. Yeah. That's this right. one is your pinhole contribution. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it? A, is it an actual Leica? pinhole? It's an actual pinhole. Right. I show it by Leica and and the uh, and the pinhole cap on it. 
you're, ju- um, you're just showing and, uh, off those palm trees in the palm trees mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> I don't have to show them off. <laughs> 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 they frame me. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, yeah, lovely. Yeah. The silhouette it's, nature it's of it. It's my daily walk. Yeah, nice sure. walk. And uh, by the way, I took it into Photoshop, and I I try I try. This is not the result of that, but I took it into Photoshop, and tried to apply a neural filter to it. Pff, forget you, it. You tried. It got so confused yeah. about what it was seeing and what wow. colors, and it, it it could not nail it, which was interesting. And you only good in a way. Hmm? Sorry. It was good. That was good in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It, this, is, this is the thing. These filters can only make sense of things that they've seen mm. before. Otherwise, they will be um, slightly confused, I guess. Um, so, um, I have submitted four cause, because I can. And uh, it, it, was, it was on a walk that I did this week. And I was just looking for things that are very, that, that showcase what uh, pinhole will do um which that's that's actually not a showcase picture that's just the autobahn because uh, because well because autobahn um and it, that that does showcase a bit that uh, you typically end up with very tiny uh amounts of light through a very tiny hole so you end up with longer exposures so that's uh, one of the reasons there um but what i find what i really like about pinhole is the fact that it's the same sharpness or the same unsharpness throughout the entire depth of the picture. So whatever is close, whatever is far away, you will have the exact same level of sharpness. And um, that lends itself to taking shots with things that are very close and very far in the same photo where mm. uh, you'd normally have to find ways to make this work with a traditional lens, uh, with a glass lens. But uh, in no this case... No focus stacking needed. No focusing needed. <laughs> um, even though even though the pinhole is in, in relation to the sensor I'm shooting on is fairly big, so you get a, a strong level of unsharpness in this one. Um, but yeah, this this close far thing, I played with, with a little flower and that... Uh, it was the same thing, very close and, uh, and further away, and it's it's all in the same level of focus, and then a little road construction, and the exact same thing. I um, like those. I, I, wa- yeah. I wonder if there's AI that that you could just paint, and it'll reconstruct what it thinks is the focus. Um, that's likely likely possible. The, there's lots of AIs today that will do that. Um, but why should I? I want I want that aesthetic. Yeah, no, I like that. No, no. I, <laughs> but imagine imagine you could you could restore magically restore whatever is in there in the original just with the brush. You yeah. you you wouldn't need any lenses anymore. You'd just have pinhole caps for all cameras from now on. Or so. or, or lidar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so Imar, you did an, a different approach. Okay, well, I did two things because I don't have an actual pinhole camera, so or I didn't make one. <laughs> so what I did was I used this app that's called Pinhole. It was very difficult to find pinhole apps. This mm-hmm. one is um, really basic controls. I quite liked it. It's color by default. So this was probably the first time I tried it out and sleepy cat on the floor. And I like what it does to the colors in color. I have no idea how it rates against the real thing. 
it it's seems very different. I have it. Uh, what what is interesting is you open the shutter, yeah, and and it could take an extremely long yeah. exposure. While you're taking the exposure, you can do a snapshot of each step. Okay, okay. And uh, I didn't opt dark, for that, but it's very dark. Yeah, when, and when it's dark, you could boost the after and post, edit it mm. to bring it out, mm. and edit the colors. I was tempted to. Magic. I was tempted to edit it, but I didn't want to because I felt it might be cheating. But look <laughs> at that blue. It's 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 intense, and what I what I think it mm. also does is to to help simulate a pinhole look. It also uh, seems to add a pretty strong vignette around the side, so um. Um, which is very typical. If you use a pinhole with a very short distance between the hole and the sensor or the film, then yeah. you end up with uh, a super wide angle, but also very strong vignetting, and that might be. Yeah. Yeah, this the um, mitigation for that is to have a pinhole camera that has a curved film plane. Okay. Yes. Because oh. then your because then your your film is is equidistant from your pinhole. That's I your your soda your soda can, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, there's that one and, and my pinhole is a, my pinhole camera, which I didn't use this week, so I should have done clearly, um, has a has a curved uh, almost, almost semicircular film plane. Um, for for exactly that reason yep. to make yeah, to cut down on the vignetting. Right. So, Imar, you submitted a second one? Yeah, the other thing I, I tried out was um, the Hipstamatic, the Hipstapack, the pinhole one. <clears throat> so that this was out in my garden. And it, it, I'm not sure if that's, uh, it looks like. It says pinhole um, on the tin, but not on the yeah, picture, I guess. Like yeah, like, but I, I do love that explosion of. Yeah. Um, it's almost I like it as if you zoomed while. Uh, watching. Yeah, True. yeah. Pull the focus or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So and then uh, um, last up, same. That's the hipstamatic one again. Um, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah, the glow around the edges. Uh, it's nice. Yeah. yeah, I was happy with that. But again, I don't know if it represents pinhole. My favorite one is the river one, which um, uh, is next. I, I I post reposted it there just so it would be next to. It. I mean, it, <laughs> it could. It yeah, this one. Um, yeah. Now. Uh, it was handheld as well, so um, there was that. But um, in that pinhole app, you you sort of see it um, exposed on the screen. So it begins really black. And then as the seconds mount up, you actually see the image develop in front of oh, you on right. the screen, which is kind of uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but definitely put it on a tripod. <laughs> it's a lot of Olympus cameras have that actually as a, a, as a you could watch the, the landscape. Yeah, the, the I'd the, love the to. Um, actually, I didn't get to try it this week, but I, I'm, I intend to stick it on a tripod and like leave the shutter open for a much longer time and just play around with that and see what happens. Um, I think you could get some interesting effects. The, pinhole the, app, it was free. The I thing I love about pinhole in general, if you're working with a real pinhole in, on your camera, is that you get to decide two things. You get to decide how sharp the image is going to be by, by selecting the size of the pinhole. So if you mm -hmm. have like four by five film and a tiny pinhole, you get almost crisp photos out of it. Mm. Um, that's the one thing. And the other thing is you decide to get uh, you, you get to decide the focal length of it. So you can okay. just by varying the distance between the pinhole and your medium, uh, you decide uh, if it's a wide angle or if it's a, it's a telephoto. You could have two okay. two sliding boxes that slide inside each other and make a make a zoom 
pinhole camera oh, okay. easily mm. and that's that's kind of the fun and the, the focal length is the distance between the pinhole and the medium so uh, make that 10 millimeters and you have a very wide angle and it's, uh, it's a ton of fun to play with that so Brilliant. yeah that brings us to our picks of the week um i forgot <laughs> Uh-huh. You forgot. Oh, no. I forgot. That's okay. Um, Until you said it this minute. That is that is perfectly fine. Uh, Jeremiah, how about yours first? Uh, I started off. I kept us on message about light. Okay. <laughs> Oops. Let me take this well out. Well done. Here we go. What it's is it? Very interesting. It's a very interesting company, Anthem. And uh, they are making... Uh, spectacular small um, lighting packages made up of uh, you see that box um, with replaceable LEDs Ah. basically for cinema that can be uh, snapped together to emulate 10Ks or 1K Uh, but for those uh, who are um, interested in, in sort of the next gen uh, very sp- see each of these that you're going through has a different color um, and uh, the, the, the and very very quickly to snap in and out for the for the crew you do not need to have a uh, generator on set uh, so and they are not crazy expensive so, so let me make sure i've understood what these are jeremiah so these these are led lights See that, that this box LED, and, and the box is is, an, is is like is a studio light. strobe kind of size right so it's not, this is yeah, not this is yeah no they're they're big when they're i first like looked at it i thought oh it's another loom cube but this is not no, that no, no, at they're all. about two feet two feet by you know eight inches and then and then uh, where we we've all kind of gotten used to over the last couple of years the idea of you know a, a led i can't remember what the term is the single chips at leds yeah where they're they're all you know whether you just get like a, a yellow circle or a yellow square in your lighting fixture they, what you're saying here is that they've made those interchangeable so that's that you right. can get these lights are absolutely precise in terms of their wavelength. So, you, just, so you're swapping out you the could... you're swapping out the bulb, so to speak. Just they are LED yeah. panels right. of yes. different sorts. Yes. Okay, okay. They run cool. They plug into oh. regular electricity. They snap together. You could be, build big arrays. And I'm, uh, I I was lucky enough to to be at a very small group, like four or five of us, because he is a friend of a friend of mine, and and, uh, to show us these lights for the very first time before they were introduced. And uh, I'm, um, as I'm kind of producing a show, now I'm trying to figure out if we could do the entire series just with this kind of package. (laughs) So, wish Mm. me luck. Ah, So, let's see. Adrian, what did you bring us? I brought you an experience, Chris. <laughs> so my pick of the week today um, is... Oh, love it, love it, love it. Is, it. is the Harry Potter Studios <laughs> just outside London. Um, now, you can substitute this wherever you are in the world for something similar. The, the point of this is that we've been talking about lighting today and there is nothing... Well, there are very few things as inspirational uh, as seeing lighting done well, mm. right? So whether whether or not you are a Harry Potter fan, um, I'm, I'm very much middle of the road um, on, on Harry Potter itself. 
um, to visit this place where they have many of the sets uh, uh, and just to, to look at it purely from a lighting point of view is just the most awesome thing. Mm. Um, you know, they do have, you know, they do have in the studios here, they have some bigger sets uh, like Diagon Alley, right? Which, but that, that has lots of different lighting setups. Some of the, some of the best lit ones are the smaller sets. So uh, one in particular that caught my eye last time I was there um, is Hagrid's Cottage. Oh, yeah. It's the inside of Hagrid's cottage. Mm. And it just it absolutely blew my mind as a, as a lighting exercise. Um, I think that another one that really got me was um, was the, the dorm room, you know, the circular room where they all have their beds. Um, that the the lighting in there was was astonishing. So so this is an inspirational thing, right? You, I'm sure there are there there. You don't have to go to Harry Potter World, but find somewhere you can go to, and from a point of view uh, of lighting, and just appreciate what what is possible, and let that inspire you. Let let me uh, give a shout out to to Roger Pratt, who I've worked with, and uh, he's the cinematographer who who lit this. Um, and Stuart Craig, uh, who I've worked with a lot, um, who's the production designer, two of the finest, first of all, finest human beings, second of all, geniuses, um, both of them in their world, very meticulous and a joy to be with and work with. Um, and these guys really created that uh, feel um, working together. They had worked together when I worked with them just uh, they had worked, we had all worked together. I had hired both of them separately. Um, and the very next thing they did was Harry Potter. So uh, both of them come from that traditional English uh, detailed um, craft of how to shape light. And there's no light in there. There's no bit of a set that is not thought through. Mm. These guys make every decision very carefully it, it is astonishing and, and and you can't the other thing is you can't see any of the fixtures and it's all just hidden away in nooks and crannies and i know it's very i, I mean i know that's really easy to achieve with a camera angle and what have you but but to achieve that in an in an exhibit that is designed for people to see from different angles mm. is, is just mm. quite extraordinary mm. um mm. and uh, you know uh, i i you know i i find that really just mind-blowing um so yeah go, go sit, f find something go out there and see something done well that's my tip for this yeah week. all right yeah. and last but not least saw it right before covid i managed to get in there <laughs> <laughs> lucky you um, that was my last trip anywhere <laughs> uh, it'll all come back uh, i've brought as a piece Soon. of kit a piece of gear that i've seen with a lot of photographers um and it is uh by young nuo the yn360 which is a light um uh let me see if it fits in the frame it's a it's a light yeah i i, I tend to call it a lightsaber it's, it's like a it's weapon a, it's a, it's a, weapon. a light wand it's a light wand. That's what it is. So if you if I turn off my lights here, light um, and then you can turn this on, and you can just point it at things from different distances and angles and so on. You can you can switch the color temperature. You can have warm light. Um, this is very bright. Oh, wow. You can change the <laughs> you can change the brightness. Uh, you can make it warm. You can make it cold. Or you can um, or you can make it. <laughs> 
It's certainly Turn powerful off. enough to do things that your camera. You can make it colorful, like. right? So you can you can change it and you can switch it out for colors and everything. So this is. Uh, can you do light painting with it? It works. Of better. course you can. Of course you can. If you if you have a, a dark room and uh, you can use it to make swooshy things in the in the picture, and uh, I think it's eighty euros 90 euros maybe they're, um, they're, yeah they're inexpensive and yes. uh, i have two of them lighting me right now um there slightly different models from the one that you've it shown. has a tripod thread so sometimes i use it as a as a light and uh, just put it on a little light stand or on, on a tripod of some sorts and yeah i um, need one of those maybe <laughs> that is that these are these are fun to play I'm dark again. super fun to play with they use standard mm. kind of batteries so um Actually, yeah, mine have the batteries. So I have a different model with the batteries built in, but it does different colors of white. Yeah, so different te- right. color temperatures between about twenty-seven hundred and about right? six thousand. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, yes. So we can get you different color, <laughs> different Kelvin temperatures off off them, as well as the RGB stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, as, as a brand, for me personally, you know, working very much in a consumer space, uh, they're they're a really good trade-off for me between the cost of ownership and what they can actually do and you know the quality of the kit and what they can do so yeah. Yeah. right i got a, a a flash from them like a manual flash mm-hmm. you know so many flashes are just automatic and they plug into whatever cameras they are designed to plug into and it's very hard to manipulate i, I got a drawer full of them one of these <laughs> i got about very four expensively yeah i got four of their speed lights yeah, you know, just because you can buy four of them for the price of anything with a yeah you know, with a uh, you know, yeah a Canon or a Nikon or a, or, a, or or whatever brand yeah 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 I was using it with the Fuji six nine just yeah right on. yeah be ideal Oof. for that yeah <laughs> that fantastic all right I guess that brings us to the end of the episode um, let's see we have learned about where what why Kelvin is called Kelvin. We've learned about um, the the history of that. Um, we've taken a journey from England to Germany to other places around the world. Um, black holes. Black <laughs> holes, yeah. Black holes. Um, we've talked about. We'll do sh- a show from the black hole next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. That would be totally cool. Um, yeah, we don't know what we'll talk about next week, but um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be exciting because we'll we always find something, <laughs> as usual. So, uh, everyone, we are, of course, online at The Future Photography. You can find us on social media, TFOP now. Until next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Future Photography. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your other podcasts. Find the show notes and more information at thefutureofphotography.com.